Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sangha sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sangha sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sangha sambuddhasa Udam saranangachami Dhamam saranangachami Sanam saranangachami Dujyampi Udam saranangachami Dujyampi Dhamma-saranam-gacchami Dutyampi Sangham-saranam-gacchami Tatyampi Udham-saranam-gacchami Tatyampi Dhamma-saranam-gacchami Tatyampi Saram Saramgachami. This completes the three refuges. Panyati Pada Brahmani Sakapadam Samariyami. I am the place of precepts to refrain from harming or destroying living beings. Adina dana Brahmani Sikapadam Samadhyami I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. Kamesu Michachara Brahmani Sikapadam Samadhyami I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. Musa Vada Brahmani Sakapadam Samadhyami I undertake the precept to refrain from wrong speech. Sura Mareya Maja Padatana Brahmani Sakapadam Samadhyami I undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicants that cause carelessness. I undertake the precept to refrain from sources of livelihood that bring harm to other beings. I undertake the precept to refrain from acting out of ill will or taking satisfaction in the misfortunes of others. I undertake the precept to be open-hearted and generous in all my relationships with others. I undertake the precept to ask for loving and compassion in all my relationships with others. I undertake the precept to live with mindfulness and follow the Eightfold Path through daily study, meditation, and reflection. With these ten precepts, virtue becomes the vehicle for a happy existence.
through virtue, good fortune is attained. Virtue is the vehicle for liberation. Let us purify our virtue. This completes the ten precepts. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from ill will. May all beings be filled with loving kindness. May all beings make themselves truly happy. Good evening. Good evening. So, any questions to start off with? Yes? Um, I want to ask about um, meditation uh, and its technique. Um, this afternoon, doing uh, my sittings, um, I got to the point where I feel very still, very calm, and um, the body doesn't feel solid. It doesn't have that solid feel to it, um, and the breath is very light. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if I don't need to breathe, mm-hmm. but I know I'm still breathing because there's like a tiny sensation, so I know that mm-hmm. there's still breathing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, so, I started to kind of see if everywhere else in my body has that pleasantness. Mm-hmm. And then I noticed that the only place that has numbness or pain is in the legs. Mm-hmm. Um, but previously, if, when I move my attention to the pain, mm-hmm. then the pain will amplify. Mm-hmm. This time it didn't amplify. Mm-hmm. It, it, but so I just look at it, but it's still there. It doesn't disappear. And I just thought, well, maybe I could just stay there and see what happens. Mm-hmm. But then I also sense that there's not like a rejection from the mind, except there's like a little reluctance there that's reluctant to stay there for a long time. And then when I come out of it, then I feel like, okay, then. I feel the solid body again. Mm-hmm. So next time when that happens, well, what should I? Okay, ne- next time, well, first of all, uh, you discovered that there was some numbness in your legs, and, and then you stayed there with it. And uh, the next time, just ignore that. If if you were looking to see whether there was uh, a pleasure in your body somewhere, it wasn't feeling, you should have continued. Next time, just continue just with continue. that. Yeah. And find, see if you can find the, the pleasant feeling and then take that as the object. The time to take uh, pain as an object is when it is so strong that you're not able to ignore it. Okay? So, but I have to still double check and make sure I don't slip into dullness when I stay there. Uh, yes, you probably won't have the problem if the uh, the meditative state that you were in at the time you decided to do that. The nature of it is such that if you if you go to that uh, if you discover a pleasantness and you take that as the object, 
uh, probably just the opposite that happens. Well, it's possible that you you might focus on the pleasantness and it just disappears, in which case you just go back to what you were doing for another maybe five, ten minutes and then try again. But more likely what is going to happen, or I shouldn't say more likely because it's unpredictable, but the other, the other alternative to what may happen is that when you meditate on that sensation, it will expand, uh, and, uh, and I don't mean to expand spatially so much as that it will, it will fill your awareness. And when it does, your awareness will become very, very clear as a part of it. So uh, you probably, you, you're unlikely to have dullness be a problem. If you, if you happen to become aware of dullness, then go back to the nose and, 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 just, and just pick up where you were before. Because the breath is so fine, I feel like even, um, there's like mama, even when I try to inhale, like mm-hmm. just a little bit deeper, yeah. I feel like I don't need it. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's kind of like somewhere I read that if a jar of water is full and then you keep pouring water in it, then <laughs> it just overfills it doesn't need any more. Right. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I just, but then how do I know that? I mean, should I should I still kind of check if check on my breath, even though that it's very very fine? No, just trust it's gonna you know <laughs> it's gonna be there. It's gonna be alright. You don't need to worry about it. Uh, one thing when your breath is really fine like that. Every now and then you'll find that a deep breath comes, you know. So uh, just let your body take care of itself. When the time comes that it needs a deeper breath, it'll just, it will just take one. So. And when that happens, don't be surprised and don't, don't let it uh, distract you from, from the practice that you're doing. Just let the body do it. So. That's one thing your body knows how to do, is to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and it knows how to read just the right amount for what you need when you need it. So I wonder if there's intention involved because like uh, earlier in the meditation when our awareness is not sharpened, um, we we have uh, uh, very strong breathing. Mm-hmm. And after our mind calms down, the breathing naturally slows down. So I wonder if there's an intention involved because since the mind can observe the breath so well, it, we, we don't really need to breathe so deeply to, to have the sensations. So You're wondering if there is some sort of intention causing you to breathe more strongly before that? Yeah, is there like very, very simple intention that, mm-hmm. that we're asking ourselves? Well, let's breathe very, very simple. Well, if you think about it, isn't both the way your breath is earlier more the way it is when you're not meditating anyway. But really, I, I, isn't the way, when you, earlier on in the meditation, before it becomes very fine and subtle, don't you think it's actually, at that time, it's more the way it is all the rest of the time when you're not meditating? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it is. So, oh, okay. uh, it's, it's, not being, oh. it's not being exaggerated uh, even by any subtle intention. I see. It's just, it's just the way it starts out more normal breathing, and as you go along, it becomes finer and finer. So that, that's a sign of concentration, or, or a result of concentration. It's it's just what happens that breathing becomes more subtle. I see. So.
Yeah. Um, something that's been causing a lot of agitation for me is um, since the discussion we had earlier. Um, my my goal in this practice is to be you know a arhat householder, right? And um, what we were talking about earlier, there seemed to be this sort of extreme extremism in the way people were talking about you know basically alienating yourself from your friends and your family and the people that are closest to you if those people don't fit the requirements of being you know good dharma friends mm-hmm. um, and to me that really caused a lot of aversion to arise I guess but because that seems to contradict the notion that uh, this craving for you know like you, you said several times you know this craving for setting up the world in such a way that it sort of fits what we want it to, to be that's exact it sounds exactly like this idea that you know if people don't fit your notions of what a good Buddhist is or what your values are you should just eliminate them from your life including possibly you know the closest people to you like your your spouse or your kids or your parents um, so I think I just wanted to it seems to me that it seemed to go to that extreme earlier and I, it, it, it sort of yeah. bothered me I, I think I think it's a way that you heard it and so let me just sort of summarize it and um, okay the idea is not that you as a Buddhist practitioner are going to recognize to, going to reject anyone uh, socially and otherwise. The closest it comes, that, and remember the question that originally started this, if you are a person who uh, uh, doesn't have a lot of inner strength and you find yourself in the company of people who are strongly uh, trying to persuade you to engage in unwholesome behaviors, then in that case, you're best to not to so- associate uh, with people, with those people, because they make you vulnerable through your own uh, desire uh, to be uh, accepted and, uh, and liked. To the degree that you can resist that, then you, you don't need to separate yourself from those people, but rather to the degree that you can resist their uh, attempts to coerce your behavior, you can instead practice skillful means, which we can define skillful means as to try to help another person come from an unwholesome to a more wholesome state of mind. Right? But in the choice where you feel like you you are in danger of having your own uh, virtue compromised, you're better to remove yourself from the company of those people. In what we the rest of what we're talking about is not that you would alienate yourself from uh, your your previous friends and your family, but as as you become less interested in uh, things like uh, idle talk, uh, gossip, television shows, movies, things like that, that they are going to find you 
less exciting and interesting to be around. And they may, in fact, complain about that somewhat. But at the same time, uh, well, if you become very self-centered and withdrawn, perhaps they will totally lose interest and abandon you and you will have alienated yourself. But that doesn't need to be the case because you can still come from a place of, uh, of uh, loving kindness and compassion and caring for these people. If they are your friends, you care for them. And you can, can openly be who and what you are and share what is important to you uh, without forcing it on them. And it becomes their choice. But unfortunately, the most likely thing that's going to happen is that you are going to cease to have as much contact with some of those people. Not because you choose to do that, but because they no longer uh, find that they have their worldly concerns in common with you in the same way that they did before. And likewise with uh, your, your family uh, and your, your spouse. There is often, in, uh, often going to be, uh, and you, it, it so much depends on, on all of the people involved, but there is often going to be some kind of reaction that, well, you've changed. You're, you know, and it, it may take the form of, you know, you're, uh, you're not as much fun as you used to be. Probably the best thing to do is to come, first of all, out of a place of uh, love and compassion and, and take the extra step to the degree that you can to find a common ground that doesn't compromise your priorities if you're primarily interested in, in the Dharma and, and becoming an Arhat and practice and talking about Buddhism with people that care about that. It may mean that you have less time available for other kinds of activities, but still, you know, coming from a place of being a, a, a loving, caring person, you can reach out to those who you care about and, and that care about you and to, and to try to sustain that place. You know, uh, alienation should be, uh, should only happen if uh, it seems somehow. Uh, it happens by itself and it's unavoidable and you've done what you can to keep it from happening. May, may I share a little bit with you? There's some of my friends, they really want to hang out with me. I actually, in the end, I take all of them to my Dharma class. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes if some very good teacher, uh, like Kuladasa, come, come to our area, if some good Dharma teacher teaching wisdom, I actually called all of them say, hey, come over, you will learn something. I kind of, uh, and actually, in fact, I did convert some of my friends become Buddhists. Yeah, and they are happy because they are learning wisdom. And that the family part, because I become a Buddhist, although they find me less interesting, but uh, they do find me become a nicer person. So it's, it's strange. They, they, you know, my, my sister-in-law, brother-in-law, 
actually we have a better relationship because I become softer, kinder, and so they, I can tell that they wanted to be with me. And sometimes I, I give them Dharma book to read. Mm-hmm. You know? If they have some personal problem, they feel comfortable talk to me. Not like before, I was so bossy and that kind of person, you know, they stay away from me. But now I can see they, they like to associate with me, they like to be with me. So sometimes if, if they have a personal problem, they start to talk to me. And I hand them some piece of the, you know, uh, uh, Buddhist, uh, Western, some good book. That's how I do it. I, I find it's quite usable. I don't uh, lose friends. I kind of just uh, convert them. We do things together. Yeah. So, I think the best idea is you share openly and honestly what you care about, you know, without forcing it on them. But, you know, uh, you can still watch movies with people, but you may, in the process, help to select those that you think are more uplifting, you know. Um, you, you can get ten questions for the Dalai Lama from Netflix and invite your friends over for movie night. <laughs> yeah, true. Yes. You know, yeah, just things, just things like that. I think it's, it's uh, maybe more about being just genuine. And uh, yeah, I, I, it's kind of funny because uh, I, among my friends, you know, or coworkers, you know, there's sort of this, you know, there's a stigma. First of all, like for example, being a vegetarian, you know, you know, thing like little things like that, yeah. like people make into these huge. You know, I'd rather just kind of be like, yeah. you know, I, I can see what you're saying about sort of just being open and, and much more mm-hmm. forthcoming with it. But yeah. there's a lot of uh, you know sort of stigma that comes with with having beliefs. I used to feel that way too and until um, we, we met two, these two other friends that also has the same interest in, in Buddhism so we form our own little group and we'll sit weekly have our own little gathering and we invite other people that we know and one thing I noticed about one of them is that he was very open, uh, telling everybody what he's doing. So when you know people ask what he's doing for the weekend, and he would say very open, he said, "Well, you know, I got a couple of hours. I had to do meditation with my friends. We get together to meditation." And after I heard that, I just felt like I should do the same thing because it's not like this is something that I'm ashamed of, have to hide. And I just, after I felt that way, then I started to tell everybody else the same thing. It's, it's actually, in the beginning, it was a little bit uncomfortable, but after that, it's kind of like, it's, I don't want to say, like, coming out of the closet, <laughs> I kind of feel like that in the beginning, is, yeah. but then after, is, yeah. after a while, it started to feel more comfortable. So, if, in, if I had to introduce, you know, those friends, say, well, these are my Dharma friends, my, my, my meditation friends, or if they say, well, where are you going for vacation next? next week because you're taking off work. So well, I'm going to a meditation retreat. And the first reaction is like, a what? <laughs> and then say, well, it's a meditation retreat. It's it's something to do to improve your mind and improve as a person. And some people kind of stay away from that. But then some people go, wow, that's interesting. Like, what is it? 
then you know then you start talking about it. Um, so it, it depends on who, but then after I made the decision to just go ahead and tell people, you actually feel I feel more free. Mm-hmm. And if they don't like it, then that's fine because I'm still nice to them as I always have been. I'm not changing my attitude toward them, but I think they're they're. Their, their attitude for me is different because all of a sudden they, you could see in their eyes that they kind of look at me in a different light. Like, oh, you've been doing all this time? Like, yeah. <laughs> so it could be a positive thing. I said I'm going to come out of the closet again with my co-workers. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, every time they ask me, why am I going? I'm, I'm going to go, go hang out with my friends, you know, which I am. It's not a lie. I'm going to do stuff together. I was like, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I like to share. Uh, uh, on the other hand, I feel like a quite uh, a different from because I feel like a, a Buddhism actually is insane. I mean, my my group of friends, um, I think they feel that if you are Buddhist, hey, you're cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, study Buddhism. You must be very smart, intelligent. Well, friends and co-workers are quite different, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> co-workers, we are very different. Yeah. Some of them are always thinking, man, you're going to go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's where you live. Like in Northern California, like Buddhism is really cool. Yeah, but in my area, I think Buddhism is really cool. Yeah. Even my, my older son, he's uh, in Berkeley. He's now in university. He told me he's going to sign up a Buddhism class next semester. Yeah, and Berkeley is very liberal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the, the, the kids yeah. over there think Buddhism is cool. Uh, of course. Orange County, <laughs> Orange County is slightly different. Yeah, it's a, it's a Republican uh, county. Oh, <laughs> yeah. my, my workplace is predominantly Caucasian. I'm one of the three Asian person in the whole workplace. Oh. And for them to tell, I mean, for me to tell them that you know, I'm a vegetarian slash pescatarian. It's like, well, what is that? Like, okay. You're only eating salad? Well, that's part of it. <laughs> yeah, people judge you very, very quickly. And there's a lot of uh, conflict at work it is, as it is. And um, I managed to pretty much be friends with everybody. And I kind of like that. I don't want to all of a sudden alien. Oh, people. I see. <laughs> I see. <laughs> yeah. And you don't want to, you know, push anything on somebody. It's not like you're trying to get in their face about it, but at the same time, you know, you you can just, when you sense it's right that you can be, that you can be a little more open about what you're doing, why not? You know? yeah. Yeah. If, uh, if they've already known you for several years and worked with you and they s- s- gradually find out about your quirky Buddhist side, probably yeah. will, won't be quite so disturbed yeah. by it. Yeah. <laughs> It's actually, yeah, so go ahead. I would like to say, though, that um, I don't know how long we've been involved with Buddhism, but, you know, to me it's been absolutely amazing, the Sangha of the world. Mm. You know, uh, know, I mean, I can go to San Jose or Santa Cruz, and, you know, there's just, there's places that, uh, Land of Medicine, there's all these different places, Vajrapani, that, you know, you just connect with people and they, there's this enormous uh, yeah. sisterhood that exists now. Mm-hmm. It's, it's yeah. blown me away. If you're not careful, sometimes you can almost forget everybody isn't. <laughs> 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 
this gives you a different perspective on what we talked about earlier. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. thanks for asking that. Okay. Anything else? Well, uh, Jackie just uh, raised his uh, uh, Just one question. Uh, before we, we uh, well, after we lie on the bed, and uh, is that okay to do this kind of meditation? Oh yes, as, as a matter of fact, most meditators at some point start meditating before they go to sleep and as soon as they wake up. But my, my worry is that if, we, if I'm doing this kind of practice, then you're going to increase my tendency to be sleepiness uh, during mm-hmm. the formal meditation. Is it? Yeah. Would you please? Yeah, I, I, I know a lot. Of, that's, that's the kind of concern that people often do have. But the way to do it, you, if you lay down in the bed and you're going to sleep, I watch your breath. Sort of make your primary goal to watch your mind as it goes to sleep. Watch what going to sleep. You know, be be mindfully aware of what going to sleep involves. And uh, one thing that you can do too is just hold the thought that, well, you're going to see if you notice whether you fall asleep on an in breath or on an out breath. Um, it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to become a problem in terms of making it more likely that you're going to fall asleep when you meditate. Uh, but I think holding the intention that you're observing your mind goes to, go go to sleep makes it a little bit different activity than when you're uh, just doing uh, uh, sitting as a as a formal meditation practice enough so that. Somehow your mind keeps it straight that this is two different situations. But it's a very good practice to do. It's a very good practice to meditate going to sleep. And coupled with that, see if you can remember as soon as you wake up to uh, begin to be aware of your in-breath and your out-breath. I do that actually. Um, I think because of retreat, I don't need so, many, so much sleep. So I think we, almost every night I wake up like a four o'clock. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it's not good to get out, you know, to disturb other just So just still uh, stay, stay in the bed, uh, do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And finally, it's easy to go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. Well, do mean that. If in this case before, I think I just, uh, <coughs> you know, turn around here, the, 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 the bell is. I cannot get sleep again. Well, if, if you... Um, it do help to, you know, to get into another sleep. Mm-hmm. If you actually wake up and, and do meditation really early, I'll be happy to be disturbed by you. <laughs> 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 That's one I just, I just, I just cannot sleep anymore. So I just uh, stand, uh, sit on the on bed mm-hmm. and do meditation. For like half, maybe half an hour or 40 mm-hmm. minutes, I feel sleepy again, so I couldn't go back to sleep. Yeah. That's it. Actually, the one night, 
In a dream, I'm dream well, that was the other thing that I was going to mention to you that after you do this for a while, you, you start to find you're meditating in your sleep too, <laughs> and you're being mindful in your sleep. You know? <laughs> it's actually it's actually quite nice. <laughs> I'm that way as well. I often all I can remember is that I had a dream, you know, and and I uh, and what I can remember if I remember anything at all is just such tiny little snatches, you know. But um, sometimes, uh, as a result of uh, uh, of meditating, especially this kind of meditation, you'll have very vivid dreams that you remember. Uh, at least that's what ha- happens with me. And sometimes you will, because of the mindfulness practice, you'll start to have uh, lucid dreams. You'll you'll know that you're dreaming. You're you're, uh, you're dreaming, and you know that you're dreaming, and uh, uh, you'll have thoughts related to that. You might uh, manipulate things. I find uh, I find when I have that kind of lucid dream, uh, often what I end up doing, if I don't like the way the dream's going, I redirect it, or sometimes I rewind it and redo that last part. You know? <laughs> but it's, uh, uh, it's also uh, very illuminating. It's very illuminating to be in that experience of uh, being aware while you're asleep and while you're dreaming. Yeah. Um, I have a question about um, death. Like when you're dying, mm-hmm. how do you make sure you go to a good place? <laughs> 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 you you uh, you lead a good life. You lead a good wholesome life. Good right. investment. Yeah. <laughs> do the right things. <laughs> do the right thing. Spend your days. Uh, Doing whatever you can to uh, be helpful to others, you know, and keep your virtue, practice the Dharma. You see, they say that when you die, uh, and uh, the moment before you die, you will become aware of those things that you did in your life that are particularly, that are karmically particularly strong, and they make an imprint on your mind, which carries over and determines your subsequent rebirth. So, uh, first of all, make sure there's lots of positive things for your mind to go to, and then secondly, uh, be such a good practitioner that. Uh, you can be mindful during your death, and you can deliberately call to mind the the uh, uh, the good the, the the good and virtuous aspects of your life. Beyond that, you can also attain enlightenment at the time of death, because as the body dies and as the brain 
begins to uh, cease to function and as the mind breaks up, there will be a moment that is the, the, same, uh, the same thing happens as what happens at path attainment. And if you've prepared your mind suitably when that occurs, then rather than being reborn, you can attain uh, enlightenment in that, in that moment. So that's the other thing. That's why it's good to practice meditation so that at the time of death you can uh, enter into a state of, of clear, focused awareness and guard your mind against uh, negative thoughts and fear and things like that. Did you have to achieve any stage before? When you said that you can get enlightened after for that moment, is there any prerequisite? If you if you can uh, if you can achieve samatha, where uh, you you have very strong mindful awareness and the mind is very still just observe the process of, of uh, dying as it takes place. So you don't... Sorry. So, become skilled in samatha. And you don't have to be uh, a stream winner or any of these people? No, this is, this, is, this is a guaranteed opportunity. Well, you can hop <laughs> stages, you can, you can go from zero to, to the fourth stage? Well... The fourth... I don't know, but it's it's always possible. I mean, the Buddha uh, became he he became fully enlightened uh, all at one time. I mean, it doesn't say in the sutras whether it was you know the stages were half an hour apart or five minutes apart or they oh. all happened all at once. But you know, I'd go for it. And <laughs> if you only if you only hit first or second stage, it's still. <laughs> You'll be reborn as a stream winner or as a once returner. <laughs> and this will be your return. <laughs> wow, that's very positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also pretty risky. Pretty risky. Yeah, see, this oh, is, we got to lose. Well, well, waiting for them will be very risky. Don't wait. Don't wait. I don't understand why you say that. Uh, as why I, is the risk there? Don't. Don't wait till the moment that you die to try to achieve it. Oh, that's not possible. You don't have the habit to be still. No, that's right. You won't. But what it means is it's never too late, right up to the very last moment. <laughs> it's never too late. No. Yeah. So when you're talking about the moment of death, um, so that even includes the last moment of your of your life includes a lot of pain and suffering because, say, assuming that you live to old age and mm-hmm. body started to body uh, <laughs> started to fall, I mean, to fail. Um, so we will try to re- remain equanimous despite the pain. Is that what you're saying? Yes, there's a very good chance that uh, death is going to be painful. So. The, the stronger your samatha, the better you'll be able to maintain it in, in spite of the things that occur with your body in the process of death. What happens to sudden death? Like, what if, you know, a person just gets run over by a bus? bus? <laughs> so, uh, no time to I, I, 
First of all, I haven't had any personal experience that I can. <laughs> 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 well, you probably have in the previous lifetimes. <laughs> you know, and secondly, um, I I haven't really encountered anywhere where somebody explicitly addresses that question. But the moments that they're talking about are so brief that um, if you had if you had really good skill in entering samatha, <laughs> perhaps you could have the moment when you realize that you're dying and still have a moment to to uh, to generate the clarity of mind. To, so, I mean, just take that as a, as a, as a goal, right? <laughs> <laughs> One reason to be more, more motivated. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So that, that really makes sense that uh, you teach us to be mindful all the time. Mm-hmm. Be mindful all the time? Yeah, that's it. For, for so many different reasons, that's the, the wisest thing to do. Yeah. yeah. Actually, that remind me uh, one question. What is uh, the right attitude for, for the Buddhist about the life sustain system and uh, about life what life sustain? Yeah, oh, it's, it's like machine sustaining life with right, machine. Yeah, right, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it isn't that attachment. I mean, it doesn't go. But <laughs> uh, or uh, the organ uh, transplant. And uh, uh, need donation, right? uh, the transplant. Maybe you, you won't donate to somebody else. Maybe somebody will give to you. What are those kinds of things? You know, should we um, donate our organ after that? Uh, as as a as a Buddhist, yes, you should donate your organs after death. It uh, it's a very it, it's a wonderfully beneficial thing to do for somebody else. And uh, there's absolutely no reason not to. It's, uh, and I heard some, some, I don't know if that's just a ritual or something, uh, like uh, after, you know, the, the Buddha, some West Buddhists uh, believe uh, after people die in, in 24 hours, you cannot move the body or something. Consciousness is supposed to be still there or something? Yeah. I, I hear yeah. That so, a lot. But if you want to do the donation, mm-hmm. after... <laughs> the, the, the organ is useless, you know, <laughs> after one hour. Some. Yeah. Well, there are, in, in, certain, uh, in, in certain traditions, like in the Tibetan tradition, they leave the body for several days. But this is, not, this is only within certain traditions. This isn't universal, this isn't something the Buddha said. So, I suppose what I should say to you is that that it's your choice. If you regard to hold a, a belief that not touching the body after death is important, then you know that's totally your right, and I wouldn't want to make you feel as though that were not a good decision. But uh, there really is nothing in what you might call the Original Buddhism or the basic Buddhism, uh, fun, you know, core Buddhism, to make you feel that that there is any reason why, once your body is dead, that your organs shouldn't be 
preserved to, to help someone else. Related to that, and connected to that, is uh, the question of whether you want your body to be kept alive on life support. And uh, on the one hand, because the human life is so precious and has an opportunity to become enlightened, then uh, you should conscientiously preserve the life of your body for as long as you might have the chance to achieve your, your enlightenment. But under the circumstances that you're not conscious in a bed with tubes and things like that, um, that's not going to serve that purpose. And uh, so there's no reason to, there, there's no reason to cling to life in that way. What about occasionally people come out of these comas after like 20 years or something like mm-hmm. that, but, but that's extremely rare. And of course, it, and during, in the meantime, it's consuming so much resources. Mm-hmm. People are are, are uh, naturally saddened because there's no uh, closure for for this ongoing thing that they worry about. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, that's that's pretty rare, and uh, you know, I personally wouldn't sign say something saying keep me alive under any circumstances, just in case I might come out of a coma in 20 years. <laughs> so you, you basically, you just want the whoever is deciding to exercise it, that's judging. Yeah. Or, I, I think, uh, I mean, it's anybody's own choice, but uh, I haven't done this, I probably should do this, but uh, is to sign one of those forms that says, you know, that if I'm on life support and the medical opinion is that I'm never going to come off of it, then, you know, pull the plug. How about if, uh, you know, we, we already sign up those kind of paper? I, I wanted to say is, just go get reverse and uh, turn, after 20 years I become young man or young girl I study practice Dharma again. I think we're very lucky to be born in a time that there's hardly any wars because in history, their famine, their war, we're assuming they're going to be born in a very comfortable place once again. <laughs> yeah, but teacher already told us, if we practice Dhamma all life long, we, we should go to a better place. Because in, in the past, I've seen very accomplished, you know, Buddhists, they get beaten to death by the cop, you know, by, by the mm-hmm. communists. Yeah, I mean, I, I think these people, they're, they're probably more accomplished than most of us here. <laughs> And we never know. The world could change in a moment. Then. Right. So. <clears throat> but the only reason for clinging to life is to, uh, is to fulfill the, the goal of achieving your liberation for the sake of uh, helping all sentient beings to come to enlightenment. And so at any point when clinging to life is, is uh, not reasonably likely to uh, achieve that goal, then it just becomes, it just becomes grasping. We're all going to die. Uh, we're already dying. We're all sitting here, dying together.
<laughs> Happily dying together. <laughs> I'm eager to 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 uh, to to, uh, to hear you talk about. Uh, you say to break out of dependent co-arising is uh, yeah. the path to liberation. I'm anxious to hear yeah. about it. <laughs> I think that's a that's a great idea. Everyone ready to talk about that? Okay. So everybody's completely familiar with uh, dependent origination. I don't have to explain any of it. No, I don't think so. I better explain it. <laughs> okay. This, this is a very important teaching because it explains how we keep creating ourselves and our world over and over again and how we remain trapped in samsara. So it's a series of, uh, of events that occur one after another that... Uh, are repeated over and over again. So that's that sequence of events, or maybe events isn't the right word. Uh, it's really a sequence of, of causality. Now, usually uh, it's presented as 12 links of dependent origination. But those 12 can be divided into three parts. And the first two are giving you a brief summary of what has happened in the past. And the last two are giving you a... Uh, are, are putting it all together as to what's going to happen in the future or how this process leads to continued rebirth. So the most important out of the twelve are the eight in between because they're describing the sequence of events that happens over and over again and that we must break in order to achieve awakening. The first link is uh, consciousness, vijnana. And wherever there is consciousness, there is the second link, Namarupa, or form and name and form. Now these first two, this first, the connection between these first two is different than all the rest. All the rest go in this one, when this one is present, it is a cause of that one and leads to, to it taking place. And then that one leads to the next one. But these, this first two, they're reciprocal. Wherever there is consciousness, there is Namarupa. And wherever there is Namarupa, there is consciousness. So they never occur independently of each other, but they always occur. Each is the cause of each other. Or as the Buddha said when he described this, that they that this consciousness turns back on itself and this nama-rupa and this consciousness cause each other. What does this mean? The Buddha said that the 
at what an individual is, is Namarupa. Uh, name and form. And that this name and form consists of five things, and we talked about those last night. The five aggregates, or five heaps, or five skandhas, or five khandhas. Uh, these are what you will know them as. Form, first. Let's look at that. <clears throat> Sometimes form means uh, materiality, the physical universe. But when we're putting Nama and Rupa together and saying, an individual is Nama Rupa, and Nama Rupa is the individual, and the Buddha is also saying that there is nothing else to you than, than this. You are Nama Rupa. You are these five aggregates. And there is no self or soul besides. Okay? So anyway, when we're talking about Nama Rupa as being what constitutes the individual, then Rupa does not mean the physical universe. Sometimes it's interpreted that it means the body but if you think about it reasonably, how do you know that the body is really compared to the other four, which are called nama, which are mental? Rupa, the body, is part of materiality. It's part of the physical universe. And how do you experience the body and how do you know the body exists? Through sensation. See, I, I can see my hand, I can feel my hand. So it's through, it's through the senses that are a part of the body that I know of the existence of the body. So when we say nama rupa is the individual, uh, what we mean, what we should take that to mean is sensation. Those sensations that are produced by the five senses. And so now we can understand that whenever there is consciousness, there is an object of consciousness, and the object of consciousness can be sensation, rupa, or it can be one of these other four that we call nama. That can be a mental object. Let's look at the other four. Nama consists of feelings, of Pleasant and unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. That's a that's a mental object, right? Feelings are known to the mind, and they are of the mind, and they're part of the mind. So pleasantness, unpleasantness, is something that belongs to the mind as part of Dhamma. Perception. The percep- perception is part of the mind. And that which you perceive is uh, uh, a mental object. Mental formations, and we talked about that. Mental formations include all thoughts, ideas, concepts, uh, emotional states, memories, intentions karmic uh, intentions, volitions, those are all the mental formations. Any of these can be an object of consciousness. We know our sensations, we know thoughts, we know concepts. 
but also the mental formations, as we talked about last night, are what determines the nature of the perception that occurs. When consciousness uh, uh, takes a sensation as object, then a process of recognition takes place, and then consciousness takes the, uh, the concept associated with that as the object. The fourth thing is consciousness itself. So really when we look at these first two links of dependent origination, we'll see uh, here's another reason why they're inseparable because consciousness is part of Mama Rupa. But the reason that I think that the way the Buddha said it is, is with Nama, with consciousness as cause there is name and form, Nama Rupa. And with name and form as cause there is consciousness. What he's saying is that we're about to describe something that takes place involving a human individual. And these are what's present. Consciousness and the objects of consciousness, which are of these two types, rupa or sensation, are all of the various mental objects. So that's the first link is is the uh, first causal link, but it's a two-way link. And now, the next step in dependent origination says that where there is namarupa, where there is an ind- individual, there will be the sense bases, the six sense bases, the sense organs and uh, the uh, objects. And the next step says, where there is, where there are sense organs and sense objects, there will occur contact between an object and a sense organ, and there will arise, as a result of this, consciousness. So this is contact. There is consciousness of the object with the sense organ functioning as the door. And then he says, where there is contact, there will arise feeling of pleasure or pain, pleasant or unpleasant, or neither. Wherever there is, the next link is, wherever there is the experience of pleasure or pain, or neither pleasant or unpleasant, there will arise craving. That's, that's, Really important causal link right there. Then he says, wherever there is craving, it, as with craving as a cause, there will be, uh, and the, this word is often translated as clinging or grasping. The word is upadana. And um, so we'll take it as meaning translated as grasping. Wherever there is craving, there is grasping. But what grasping means, grasping means making real the idea of self and the idea of the object that you perceive as as responsible for the pleasure or pain. So this is a very important thing that's happening. Upadana This is the process by which you create a self capable of suffering and you create 
a world that is separate from the self. You basically take reality, you divide it into these two. Self and the world. And your mind is, is now taking them as real. And then with upadana, with grasping as a cause, there is becoming. So we become what our mind has, has generated. And we come into this reality. And as a result of that, part of becoming is this is where our karmic actions arise. So, we, when we become, then we become a self with something we want, and we commit an action to obtain what we want. Or a self with something that we uh, despise and we perform an action to, to eliminate or, or separate ourselves from that which we despise. That's what, that's what becoming is. <clears throat> so, then... Uh, in these, in this sequence, what the Buddha is saying over and over again, what happens, here you are, you exist. There's consciousness in name and form. And so then there is, because there are sense organs, and that which contacts the sense organs, there will be contact, there will be feeling, there will be craving. The mind will grasp and make real, and then there will be becoming. Now what we experience is the chain of becoming. We're mostly unaware of any of these other steps. Right? But if you think, if you think what, what does your life consist of? It's all of these events, which in every case there is a self and something that you have either desire or aversion for, and then some action that arises to express that desire or aversion. It might be a physical action, it might be a verbal action, or it might just be a thought. But it's, it's an action. It's a volitional action that comes out of it. And this is your history. You look back, and, and a moment ago, and ten minutes ago, it's this chain of becoming, which is the last of these links. But now we can see what's happening here. Each of these becomings is a separate event. And each of those becomings is the result of a causal chain, the links of, of dependent origination. So we can see that this chain of becoming is filled with suffering because it arises out of desire and aversion. We look at the links and say, where can it be interrupted? And where it can be interrupted is at the link of craving. If you can eliminate the link of craving, then you will eliminate the grasping. And if you eliminate the grasping, you eliminate the becoming. So, this, this is how you do it. Right? So then, what we want to accomplish is to break the links, interrupt the links of dependent origination at the link of now this is not different than what we said before when we discussed the, uh, the four truths. We see that the cause of suffering in our life is due to craving, and that if we can bring about the cessation of craving, that 
we will bring about the cessation of suffering. But there is a lot of deeper philosophy embedded in this dependent origination. Because it's also recognizing that that what we do in every act of grasping is creating an illusion of a self and creating an illusion of an object or objects to which our uh, craving is is directed and uh, that it is the mind's grasping to these two that brings us into being. So, what what is happening here? Um, you have a sensory, uh, you have you have an experience. I shouldn't say sensory experience because remember, in the link of the sense bases and contact, it involves all six senses. So it can be a mental object, not just a sensation. And as a matter of fact, you can see that very often uh, it's the it's a sensation that triggered the mental object to come into being. You have a pleasant sensation, and so you have a concept related to that, you know, um, desirable sex partner or whatever it is. Some concept comes up. So what happens is there's a sensation. Uh, now, I said I wasn't going to use the word sensation so that we're clear we're talking about mental objects as well. There is, there is a... There is a phenomena of contact with one of the six kinds of sense objects. And so there is the feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And as a result of that, there arises craving. Now just in terms of this craving, what is craving? Craving is craving related to the senses. So it's craving for pleasure or pain. But it's also craving for existence or non-existence. So even where the feeling that arises is neither pleasant nor painful, there can still be a craving that arises, such as a craving for something that is pleasant instead of something that's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. A craving for... For that matter, there can be just simply the craving to come into being. Now, what this is describing is actually something that's happening over and over again very, very quickly. Because, you know, it's like in a movie, uh, a movie is made up of separate pictures, but it seems like a continuous continuous action. Our life appears continuous the same way the movie on the screen does. But in a sense, our life, instead of being continuous, is made up of a series of, of events taking place very rapidly, one after another, where contact with the sense object is triggering feeling, craving, grasping, and becoming. And that's creating the movie of our life. The problem with the movie of our life is that the self that the movie of our life, the self in the image that the movie of our life generates, is empty of any real existence, and is the root and as the belief in that self is uh, the root of uh, the ongoing craving and suffering that we experience, and that these objects that we grasp and that we uh, act in order to obtain, these objects are empty of any self-existent reality. 
Because reality is a constant flux, a non-stop change. There is no permanence. And the thing that we imagine to be there, that we grasp, doesn't exist and cannot exist. It's only something that the mind projects on an ultimate reality that is nothing but constant change. Also, it has no nature of thingness and separateness because the reality upon which we project this appearance of it being a separate thing that can be obtained or destroyed or whatever is an illusion. The reality itself is totally interdependent. Everything is interconnected. Nothing is separate. So the illusion that samsara is is an illusion that's created by the mind taking a seamless ultimate reality and splitting it into a self and objects of desire or aversion and and just generating this whole process over and over again. Now, what do we do about this? How do we become awake? How do we become enlightened? How? Okay, this is a great idea. Buddha gives us this theory of this is how things are. But we need some way, first of all, to to discover that this theory is in fact in fact true. That's really what's happening. And then we also. Uh, need to be able to do something about it if we want to become enlightened. So that's what all of the practice is about. How do you interrupt this process long enough to have the direct experience of uh, nirvana? Nirvana means the cessation of craving. So if you have the direct experience of the cessation of craving, that means that you're having, uh, when you experience nirvana, you're experiencing what happens when the link of craving is, is, is severed. Or, you have the direct experience of emptiness. Well, what does it mean to have the direct experience of emptiness? It means to stop the process of the mind chopping ultimate reality up into separate things with an imaginary permanence that consists of a self and and objects of desire and aversion, and to see ultimate reality as it really is, which is empty. So direct experience of emptiness means the direct experience of the true nature of reality, which is empty of all of these constructs. It's empty of all of these projections. To see emptiness is to see it the way it is, empty of these projections. So, and if we can experience nirvana, if we can have a direct experience of emptiness, if we can see the true nature of reality, then we've achieved the first stage of enlightenment. Our minds will go back to running, running the cycle of dependent origination again. But now we know. We've stopped it and we've seen, right? So that's the beginning, that's stream entry. Right. So, now let's talk about what's actually involved in 
the stopping, at least, you know, as we said, enlightenment can happen in many ways, and even totally unexpectedly. Some people become enlightened while waiting for a bus. Very, very rare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Most people... You actually, see, you actually know the case of people waiting for the bus and they're enlightened? Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, that's, please ignore me. We have better, better use of, of your time. But, uh, but I'll, I'll tell you, in fact, uh, I have read a reasonably convincing account of a woman for whom that happened. She had no previous spiritual practice. Uh, she had an experience of the cessation of the creation of the world. She didn't know what to make of it, and uh, her life was very difficult for some time afterwards. Because that's the disadvantage of it happening spontaneously. You don't know what happened. (laughs) All right. Uh, There are accounts of it happening as a result of people who experience extreme suffering for uh, long periods of time. It can happen uh, as a part of people being engaged in really extreme devotional experiences, and there are accounts of those. But most, what we, what I'm most familiar with, and I think what most commonly happens. When somebody becomes enlightened, it's the result of a uh, period of very deliberate and very systematic spiritual training in a spiritual path that's intended to lead to that. Uh, one such which is this Buddhist path that we're practicing. And as far as I have been able to discern, uh, although other paths, other uh, traditions other than the Buddhist traditions do offer spiritual paths that will lead to this goal. That this is by far the most systematic, the most understandable, the most applicable, the most reproducible over and over again in many people. So it's very reliable. So that's the one that I know, and that's the one that I'm going to describe to you. If we follow the path that the Buddha taught, that leads to the cessation of craving, uh, the experience of nirvana, uh, the direct experience of emptiness, the uh, knowledge and understanding of the true nature of reality, and therefore the attainment of the first path uh, of liberation. This is how we try to bring it about. Of the facts about the illusion that we are trapped in, the one that is easiest to grasp is impermanence. It's easiest to see beyond the illusion of permanence. And so that can be the easiest gateway. But by itself, it is not sufficient. Other things that uh, characterize reality and that are misconstrued by the illusion that we are in, in addition to the appearance of, I won't say permanence, because we don't really see everything as permanent, but we see everything as, as being at least uh, temporarily enduring and separate. We also 
experience things as, yes, having a separate nature of their own. Most particularly, we experience ourselves and ourself. Myself is a separate reality. And, and seems to me, it feels to me to be uh, real. So the second characteristic of reality that is obscured by illusion is that there is no self. There is no separate self. No self. But the illusion, in the illusion, the self seems real. Related to that, part of that, is the emptiness of the world. Uh, It also seems that this self exists within a world of other things that are separate from and independent of this self. And each of those is a separate entity in its own right. Through understanding impermanence, we can begin to break down the mind's attachment to this way of uh, seeing things. And through recognizing that all we really go by is sensation, and yet the mind projects concepts onto those sensations to make sense of it and to create a world and explain why we have the sensations that we do and to help us to predict what kind of sensations we're going to have in a few minutes if we do this or if we do that. We can see that that is just a projection on mind. We can understand that. We can get a grasp on emptiness. So the easiest thing for us to do is to see that the reality is impermanence and anything other than impermanence is an illusion and that the reality is that there is no thingness to what we experience with separate natures but that is only a projection of our mind and therefore the world is empty and then not only that but we can come to understand as we talked about the other day that the self is empty of any self-existent reality as well but the self is also a projection of the mind and then the other thing is that this illusion that we live in will never be satisfying and fulfilling and it will always produce pain and suffering but the illusion tells us if only I can have this and that and that and if only I can prevent this and that and the other thing from happening I will then be happy and if only I can hold on to these and continue to keep these away I'll continue to be happy that's the illusion right? so the illusion is that there is some sort of uh, enduring quality to things that have a reality in their own side and that I am an uh, existent being that can enjoy those things and can obtain them and, and manipulate this external reality and that if I try hard enough, long enough I'll succeed in manipulating this reality and I'll become happy as a result that's the whole illusion right there so the Buddha said come to understand the characteristics of impermanence selflessness and uh, dissatisfactoriness as fully as you can and this is and this is what we do 
in all of our practices, our sitting practice, our walking practice, uh, any kind of vipassana practice. Uh, vipassana means special insight. And the special insight that we're after is the insight into impermanence and the insight into non-self and the insight into ultimate dissatisfactoriness. These are these are the core insights. There's many other insights that are related to this, but they're all related to this. This is the these are the core insights that we're after. Okay. Now, all of our practice is as much as possible a form of vipassana trying to lead to those insights. The condition that most reliably and consistently will lead to the cessation of craving and path attainment is when you have these three insights firmly established in your mind. At the same time, your mind is still and completely still and observing the arising and passing away of phenomena. And your mind also is in a state of profound equilibrium. In other words, uh, not equilibrium, uh, sorry, profound equanimity. In other words, craving is as weak as you can make it already. So that the grasp, there's as little grasping as possible already taking place. This is a mental state, a meditation state, that's that is called samatha. Uh, and uh, another name for it is the uh, knowledge of equanimity towards formations. In samatha, you have profound equanimity and you have profound concentration and you have profound mindfulness. So you observe a phenomenon unfolding, passing, rising and passing away, rising and passing away. You observe them unfolding. Now, if while you have samatha, you also have this very clear understanding of the three insights, then what will happen is in some moment, we look back, let's go back to the steps of dependent origination. In some moment, one of the six kinds of objects will contact one of the six sense organs. And there will arise a feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. And at that moment, the insights, the three insights will be so strong, and the equanimity will be so strong, that the mind reacts in a different way. At this point, the mind, it doesn't even see that object as an object in the way that it normally would. It sees that object as impermanence. It sees impermanence directly. And it sees selflessness, emptiness and selflessness in the object. And it sees dissatisfactoriness in the object. And so now what the mind does is turn away from it. And in so doing, it interrupts the process. At that point, there's cessation of craving, and grasping does not occur. And there is experience of 
the true nature of reality. And this is the path moment, the attainment of the path. Attainment of the path. Can I explain that? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> attainment. attainment uh, the four stages of light enlightenment are called the four paths. Oh. So the path moment. This is the moment of attainment of uh, the first stage of enlightenment. And it happens pretty much the same way in, over and over again in the future. Now, if you, if, when you have this experience, what it does do. First of all, any doubts you had about the Buddhist path are gone. So there's elimination of doubt. Right? Once you've been there, done that, <laughs> you don't want to be correct. There's no wondering about maybe anymore. That's out of the picture. Secondly, uh, you've had an experience. A, a direct experience that there is no self and there is no world and so afterwards you are just not going to believe in this idea of self this concept of self or even this feeling of self anymore because you know better so you have permanently overcome your attachment and belief in the reality of self likewise you've understood the emptiness of, of the world. So that's the second thing, is that you have overcome the attachment to... you've overcome the attachment to the belief in the self. The third thing that happens, of course, you've seen the emptiness of the games the mind plays. And you realize that you no longer believe in rites and rituals and magic, things like that. And up until that point, to some degree, you still believed in magic. To some, some degree, you, you still thought enlightenment was even some sort of, you know, um, if, you, if you did all the right things in the right order, then magic would happen. Well, it is a kind of magic. But it doesn't come from, it doesn't come from any external source or power. Magic, magic is ma- magic is magic. It comes from some supernatural source, but you don't believe in that anymore. So that's these are the three defilements that have been obliterated at stream entry. Now it's very important. You know this happens. You don't really know what's happened, and and your mind goes back to you know all of a sudden you find yourself uh, uh, oh here's the self again, here's the world again, but you really know something different. And uh, what is very important is that you've arrived at this through a path of practice and you can repeat it. And every time you go back and you experience nirvana again, that's, that's, uh, that's called fruition consciousness. And you do that an important part of the way that you're going to achieve the second path, that you're going to achieve the second stage of enlightenment, is that you're going to keep revisiting nirvana. And you're going to learn to uh, revisit nirvana for longer and longer periods of time until the understanding that it brings has penetrated to the absolute depths of your mind. 
Now let's talk about the mind here. What happens with nirvana is the mind stops. It stops doing its thing. But then it has to start doing again because, I mean, we're we're consciousness and nama rupa. That's what we are, and so and that's what the mind does. So it starts doing its thing again. And the mind still is, it's still conditioned. I mean, your mind is still filled with all of the habits that it had before. All the old ways of looking at things, they haven't gone away. Certain things have changed in your mind, though. You can think of your mind, you know, in modern terms, I don't know how the Buddha thought of it, but in modern terms, we can think of the mind as, as this fantastic computer. And it's filled with all this information and it's always taking in new data, and it runs programs. And then it produces results that are the results of the programs that it runs. And that's determined by the data that it has. It has some really new data now. It has, there's one of the programs that the mind has always run, has been creating a self. And when you come back, well, the mind's still going to create itself. It's got to do that. I mean, otherwise you've got no way to keep your laundry separate from anybody else's. Right? You've got to have a sense of self. You just, you know, like Jill Bolte-Taylor, when she had a stroke and the part of her brain that's responsible for that mechanism of making itself wasn't working, she couldn't function in the world. <laughs> she had to have somebody else take care of all of those things because... She her husband's yeah. underwear. <laughs> I'm sorry. She, I, I couldn't help it. <laughs> She uh, she wasn't married, and it was her, her mother who was taking care of her. But but yeah, I mean, she'd walk out in the street in her own underwear, and <laughs> it seemed like a person, perfectly reasonable thing to do. So she, you know. I'm sorry. So that was a bad no, that's all right. That's all right. That's good. So anyway, you see, so to, to live in the world, our mind has to generate this construct of self, but we no longer have to believe in it. That's one way that the mind has changed. It, it just, it's now can be understood more clearly as uh, a something functional that the mind does. And uh, and now, of course, you can work on refining that. You've got a lot of, you've got a, a lot of egocentric habits that are still there associated with, from uh, a few minutes ago when you still believed in the sense of self. And now you're going to have to spend a long time uprooting those old habits and changing them. It's going, to, going, it's going, whereas in the future, I mean, whereas in the past, that task of uprooting those egocentric habits might have been really a challenge, taking a lot of time, taking a lot of effort, lots of practice of mindfulness over and over again to uproot each habit one at a time. Now it's a lot easier. So that's one of the things that's changed. Another thing that has changed is so much of our experience of suffering is dependent upon this concept of self. Uh, likewise, so much of our unwholesome behavior is a result of our craving, which is in turn related to you know, the self that we cherish and that we're trying to provide with pleasure and protect from pain. So one of the ways that's changed is that 
your mind has new data to operate on. So it finds you find yourself in certain situations, and because of its new information, the program of the mind's a little bit different, and it doesn't produce the same kind of suffering it did before. It still produces suffering. As a stream entrant, you're not completely free from suffering because you're not completely free from craving. You're not completely free from desire and aversion. Uh, and aversion. But it's nothing like before. After all, where does suffering come from? Craving. When you feel miserable, well, uh, it comes from craving, but also in another sense, you look at it this way. Okay, when I feel miserable, where does that mis- feeling of miserableness come from? Well, my mind creates it. <laughs> your mind creates your suffering. It's a, it's a mental state, it's an emotion. Your mind says, your, your mind looks at the data, runs a program, answer, <laughs> produce suffering. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then you're miserable. <laughs> Why do I feel so bad? But it's because you're, you feel so bad because your mind added everything up and it says, hey, we're supposed to feel bad. So it makes suffering. <laughs> but now, now something's different. And so it just it doesn't produce suffering in quite the same way. And even, even, if, it, even if you're you know, a very complex computer, so sometimes it takes a little while to get all the settings you know, reset to the new data. But the thing is that when you find yourself in a lot of suffering, you can say, wait a minute, I don't need to do this anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's why, that's what's so good about being a stream mentor. Same thing, you know, all of our habits and the craving that we still have can cause us to start behaving in ways that are not wholesome. I mean, there is this myth, you might come across a stream entrance, have perfect virtue, and they never can commit any unvirtuous action. It's not true. You know, nice idea. Maybe if the stream entrant lives in a monastery, has been perfecting his virtue for a long time, might be true. But in general, the stream entrant, he's still got all of these habits of behavior, still has some, some desire and craving and aversion. So... Still going to have, a, a, you know, if his mindfulness lapses, can slip into some behaviors of a kind that uh, are unvirtuous. But the thing is, you realize it, especially if he starts to see that's causing suffering in somebody else. Uh, and the same, it's the same thing. It's wait a minute. There's no reason for this to be happening anymore. There's no reason for me to be attached to this particular idea that makes me behave in this way. It's really fun. So this is, this is the benefit of becoming a stream entrant. But this is how you get there. And this is why the meditation is important. It's why every form of vipassana that you can practice is important. Anything that you do that helps you to become more continuously aware of impermanence, the illusionary nature of the self, and the ultimate dissatisfactoriness of life as it is, is vipassana. Vipassana is not labeling the rise and fall. Vipassana is not scanning the body. Vipassana is not any particular practice. 
Vipassana is absolutely everything that you can, everything and anything that you can ever possibly do to make it clear, as clear as possible, the these three characteristics and to make you aware of them all the time. You can have profound meditative experiences in which you have the direct experience of impermanence. You experience sensation just continuously rising and passing away, no substance in it, and you you realize that my mind is just projecting these things on this continuous flow. That's a direct experience of impermanence. And it makes it, and it's really, really clear to you. But what is going to take some effort is to establish that so you're aware of that all the time. You don't forget it. You have this wonderful experience of impermanence and then you get off and then you've forgotten all about it. You have to keep reminding yourself. Well, you do. You have to keep reminding yourself. You have to keep going back and seeing impermanence again. You have to remind yourself. You have to re-experience it. You have to, in all kinds of circumstances, you have to say, you have to remind yourself, this is impermanence. And try to see the impermanence that's there. The same thing with selflessness. You have to keep reminding yourself that, you know, especially at those times when the sense of self is really strong, you know, I want things to be this way, and I'm a controlling person, so I'm going to make, you know. <laughs> those are your prime opportunities. That's you go and say, oh, there's not really a self here, is there? Ah. But look at this. You know, my, my mind makes it seem just as if it is. Keep reminding yourself. And, 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 and try, you know, it, it's not just trying to convince yourself of it by saying it over and over again. You're trying to see the reality of it so that it becomes a part of the way that... It becomes a part of your view. Because, see, in that state of samatha that is going to result in path attainment, all three of these insights have to be really strong and really balanced. Any one of the three is weak. doesn't matter how where you are of the impermanence. If, if the understanding of not-self is weak, then you, you're not going to have the breakthrough. You're talking about the fourth through right now. What's that? Uh, push through, are you talking about? I'm talking about the first one. Oh, the first one. I'm talking about any of them. I'm talking about the first one. In order to... Uh, now, I was talking about before first path, you have to keep reinforcing your understanding of these three, uh, of, of these three characteristics. Because you're looking forward to the day or the moment or the hour when that pays off. And, and, and path attainment and, and craving stop the mind stopping doing what it's doing and you have to work on all three of them now what I'm pointing out to you here is you come to that moment you're in samatha you've got profound equanimity uh, and you have really clear understanding of impermanence and dissatisfactoriness but you haven't really got the same depth of understanding of, or the same degree of insight into not-self, the mind's going to keep, it's going to keep the process going because there's still all of that clinging and craving associated with the, the idea of self. Or it could be, you know, you could have, uh, now, and, and especially if the idea of not-self is weak and the idea of, 
dissatisfactoriness and impermanence is strong, you can have a very uncomfortable experience. Because having, having, still feeling like you're a self, but you're now a self that lives in a world that is, uh, where, where there's nothing to stand on, nothing to hold to, nothing to rely on, and no matter what you do, it's it's doomed to uh, bring you unhappiness in the end. That's not a, that's not a nice place to be. But anyway, that's a little bit of a digression. If any of the three are weak, you're not going to have the breakthrough. If if not self is clear, and if uh, uh, you have profound insight into impermanence, but you're still not quite convinced that you know happiness isn't obtainable somehow, you're not going to have the, the the breakthrough. So you need the vipassana practice, whatever form it takes, whatever. And that's all you need to know. How do I practice vipassana? What I need to know, what, how you practice vipassana is if you know what you're trying to do. You're trying to clearly and firmly establish insights into impermanence, selflessness, and unsatisfactoriness in your mind. That's practicing vipassana. And you can do it all the time. I do it all the time. The factors of enlightenment, of, uh, of effort and investigation are what's involved here. Now the other factors of enlightenment come from meditation specifically, which are concentration, mindful awareness, uh, uh, joy, equanimity, tranquility. So these, these other five, this is why you asked last night, Michael, so why are we sitting here and watching the sensations at the tip of our nose if what we really need to be doing is, is uh, developing insight? And that's the reason. You do need these other five factors of enlightenment. And as a matter of fact, you're not going to really be able to practice the vipassana as if nearly as effectively, and maybe not effectively enough at all, unless you have unless you have the meditation to to bring you these particular mental skills. You don't need uh, um, meditation to have joy and tranquility. It seems like just by being virtuous, that's a natural product of it, right? Um, being virtuous will help to bring joy. Yes, but. There is a, there is the joy that spontaneously arises with the unification of the mind, uh, which is the that is the enlightenment factor that you want to cultivate in meditation. Right? I see. That's part of this path. Remember. The formula I'm giving you isn't necessarily absolutely the only way to achieve enlightenment. But in terms of the path that the Buddha taught, you know, and the seven factors of enlightenment that the Buddha found and taught to be uh, essential to this path, mm-hmm. it is that particular joy. But every kind of joy, I mean, joy is joy. And if you want to have meditative joy, it's good to have a joyful state of mind 
in the rest of your life. It's going to make meditative joy occur much more easily. And it is with beyond question that living in a uh, virtuous way and practicing uh, loving kindness, compassion, and generosity are going to contribute enormously to your joy. Yeah, the little bug over there is going to become enlightened now, listening to <laughs> They say the animals and insects that listen to Dharma talks, they, that, uh, they, get, they get reborn as... Uh, they are reborn as monks in their next lifetime and they get to... It's a good strategy you're giving you. Anyway. Oh, well, there's mice around here. All those mice, yeah. Oh, lucky mice. Lucky mice. Yeah. They get the jackpot. Those mice have good karma to decide to live in a house or in a, in a retreat house, right? We shouldn't drive them away. We should invite them. Go for my closer. Don't go to the bathroom. Invite them doesn't matter. <laughs> so you can always just, you know, re- recite a little dharma when the mouse comes out. <laughs> exactly. It's the one that Shilasa said, there are a bunch of mice in your room. They're, they're, they probably heard about the good news, they're all congregated. <laughs> <laughs> those, those, a funny thing about those mice, because... You know, the, the, you, you wonderful, generous people keep bringing our meals to us in our room so that I can eat in peace and solitude. And uh, so sometimes we didn't always, you know, there were uh, pieces of paper in the, in the trash bag that had food on it and little bits of food here and there. And the mice were having a party every night. <laughs> In the middle of the night, you hear a mouse running around in a paper bag, you know, licking the crumbs off of a piece of paper. It makes a lot of noise. So anyway, a few nights ago, we thought, okay, we, we're gonna, not going to leave a single crumb anywhere here for these mice. You know, and took out all the dirty paper and everything else like that. Well, the next morning, there were acorns on the table. The mice came and they said, well, these poor people, they've run out of food. That is, yeah. See, they're practicing generosity. They are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have to really think oh, differently about mice. these mice, you know. They're... Then we didn't eat it, so then they took it back. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we saved the acorns, and we were showing them to, showing them, look at the acorns that the mice brought us. And then we left them on the dresser, and then the next night they disappeared. <laughs> well, you don't want that, I'll take it back. <laughs> No, it's similar like uh, if you put a fruit or water in front of a Buddha, the yeah. next day the Buddha didn't drink it and eat it. So people take it away. It's a thought that Kelly offered. It's the same thing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not. <laughs> Like. Sophia? Yeah, the first part of Dharma talk you gave us last night mm-hmm. is very important for tonight. Yes. Okay. That's true. <laughs> so, thank you. Yeah, every part is important. Every part makes this part great. <laughs> so, um, any questions?
I want to verify. You mentioned our empty is mean the empty of the, uh, the projection. Mm-hmm. That's emptiness. That's emptiness. Yeah. But people sometimes have trouble understanding uh, what emptiness means, you know, and they think it's like nothingness or, or void. But emptiness means specifically empty of, of any nature of being the way it appears to be, because the way it appears to be is a projection of our mind. Yes, that's 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 the key things that cultivate the understanding of yeah. yeah. For an average practitioner, which uh, stage of uh, um, some uh, meditation uh, does he observe the you know, break the link or observe the temporarily stopping craving? Uh, of the ten stages, the the tenth stage describes the, the state that you want to come to, which uh, you and, and it doesn't mean uh, the the description of the ten stages is describing how you become a yogi who can uh, enter samatha every every time or almost every time you sit down or any time you sit down. That's not necessary. You know, it could happen to uh, to somebody who previously has never gotten past the third stage, and yet they're on a retreat, they have a really good sit, and they find themselves in uh, a meditation that corresponds to the tenth stage. As a matter of fact, uh, in terms of those ten stages, you can find yourself in any one of those stages at any time. So a rank beginner can find themselves in an eighth or ninth or tenth stage meditation practice. In terms of of developing their practice, though, uh, they will probably have to go back to being a beginner and work themselves their their way all the way through two, three, four, five, you know, in order to consistently be there. There's a difference between what can happen just as once out of the blue, or one or something that can happen. Rarely, but you don't know how to cause it to happen, and having trained your mind so that you can consistently do something. But yes, the stage, the stage that we're talking about, where this is going to happen, is 